How many of you have ever traveled out of the United States? Quite a few of you. If you're like me, when you, when you go to a different country, it feels kind of obvious that you're the oddball. And I usually feel like I need to be on my best behavior. So there's a sense of like, okay, they're going to figure out I'm an American. And, well, I better, I better act really good. I don't want them to think that Americans are rude or inconsiderate. So usually we try to put on our best behavior. Well, it makes one of the interesting things about diplomatic immunity rather peculiar. If we had this sense of we're supposed to be on our best behavior, why should you be immune to following their laws and customs? Seems like you would want to figure those out pretty quickly and then abide by them. Now, you've probably all watched some police shows where the police find someone making this major infraction, they're chasing them down, and all of a sudden they pull them over, the person whips out their ID, and oh my goodness, they're a diplomat. And the police are like, ah, oh, justice cannot be served. But that's not just in movies. It also happens in real life. Just last August, the wife of a foreign diplomat, her name was Anne Sakulas, was in Britain. And she was driving on the wrong side of the road. Now, that's a very easy thing for an American to do. We drive on the right, I mean, correct side of the road. The Brits do that, that left thing. So, lo and behold, she's driving on the wrong side of the road. Well, what makes matters worse is that while she's driving on the wrong side of the road, she strikes a biker and kills him. So he dies in the hospital. And then suddenly, in a few days, she's on a private jet back to the U.S., citing diplomatic immunity as to why she should not be tried for dangerous driving. You can imagine if you're a local, this was someone perhaps you were a teacher for, your neighbor. How would you feel about suddenly a foreigner citing diplomatic immunity and leaving the country never to be tried again? Now, they are actually trying to get her here in the United States. They're trying in the court of Virginia to hold her accountable for actions in Britain. We'll see how that works out. So that story continues. But imagine we leave a bad taste in the mouth of those who are around her. How could someone who is our guest hurt us and then leave and be free of any kind of claims against justice? Especially when most of us think when we're living in another country, we should in fact be on our best behavior. We should in fact be model citizens. And you know, that's exactly what Peter is going to call us to today. Because as citizens who belong in heaven, for those of us who have our citizenship in the heavenlies, have an otherworldly identity, Peter's going to say, as you exist and as you live here on earth, your behavior shouldn't just be equal. It should actually be par excellence. It should be an exemplary life. Peter's going to call his readers to a cut above, to following God as the holy people of God. So today we're going to look at 1 Peter, and he's going to have some instructions for us. We're going to see several things. We're going to first of all see what it means to be the people of God. What is our identity? What is our label? What is it that we wear? Then two, because of who we are in Christ, because of who we are as God's people, he's going to call us to live as exemplary foreigners. We're going to also see that he calls us to obey our human leaders and finally, we're going to see that we are to freely live as God's servants. 
So let's begin today. We're going to turn to 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's see if my clicker works today. We've got birthdays. That was... All right, there we go. Excellent. We're into it. We're turning to 1 Peter, so turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. And what we're going to see is that Peter, Peter's working through this section where he's going to outline all these things we're going to look at. But he's writing this letter to people who are beginning to experience a little bit of persecution. Now, as far as we know, there's no empire-wide persecution at this point in time, or even of this area. It just seems that some of them have begun to experience the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. There is a label, perhaps, of a fiery ordeal. I don't think that's Nero's fire in, in Rome. Perhaps. Some people argue that way. But it just seems that they are beginning to experience a bit of disenfranchisement from the community. They're being cut out of civic life. They're, 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 they're finding themselves ostracized in some significant ways. And it's beginning to hurt. And so Peter writes these words to them to encourage them to be faithful and living in the midst of that situation. And so here's what he writes. We're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And here's what he writes. He's going to call them to be the people of God. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter uses a number of different labels for the people of God in this passage. Let's unpack some of these together. The first one here is that he calls them the chosen people. This simply identifies them as they are the ones that God has chosen, that God has put his name on. It is not because of something good in them. No, it is because of God's election. It's not a position that they've earned. It is a position that was given because of God's gracious choice. And so it's a position of privilege, yes, but not one that they have deserved. The next two things that are labeled here come from a passage, and we'll unpack this in a little bit, but it says this, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. These are two very important labels that Peter now describes his readers as being. These come from Exodus chapter 19. This is a very important passage. It comes right before the Ten Commandments. It's in this section that God is making a covenant with Israel, calling them to be his people, and the Ten Commandments are really the other side of the bargain. This is what Israel was supposed to do as their part of living into this covenant. But first, God reminds them of what they're supposed to be. Israel's called to be something, and this is their mission in the world. Exodus 19, 5-6 says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is what God was going to make Israel as a result of keeping the covenant. There was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Priests had a lot of different roles, but one of them was to represent the people back to God. What would that mean for the entire nation to be a kingdom of priests? 
Obviously, they still had a tribe of Levi, so not everyone would have served in the priestly role. But their entire nation was to have this identity and priestly function. They were to live into the sense that they were to usher in everyone else to understand who Yahweh was. They were to be the priests to bring everyone else's worship directed back to Yahweh. They were to be God's chosen people to direct the praises and offerings back to him. That was their role. The next item there was to be a holy nation. Holiness means to be set apart, to be distinct. And so God has picked Israel as one place. And in some sense, this is a risk for God, right? He's going to identify with a people. He's going to say, you're mine. But he wants them to be different. So the other nations, as they look upon Israel, says, there's something real going on there. They serve the living God. And Peter now applies these two labels to his church, to the churches to whom he's writing, saying, you are a kingdom of priests, you are a holy nation. The next label here is the people belonging to God or God's special possession. God, God picks them for himself. What an honorable place to be to be God's possession, to be one whom God has marked out for himself. That is what the church is, belonging to God. The last pair of labels are very significant. There's a deep history to them. So these last two labels are this, the people of God then have received mercy. These pick up important names from the book of Hosea. Hosea lived an interesting life. God made him name his kids after his prophecies. So he had two kids. One of them was named Loami, which means not my people. And then he had a daughter, and he named her Lo Ruhamah, which means no mercy. Now those are names better suited for a boxer or a wrestler. Can you imagine naming your daughter No Mercy? You can imagine going to school like, hey, what's your name? Yeah, I'm no mercy. Oh, okay, I don't want to mess with her. Okay, well, we're going to stay over here. Don't ask her out for a date. Those were the names that Hosea's kids bore. And they signified that God was going to reject his people. God was rejecting Israel. But that was not the end of the story. At the end of chapter 2, Hosea receives this word from God, which is the undoing of both of those names. So check out this, this name here. And in that day, this is looking forward from Hosea's time into the future, he says, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And note this, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Wow, can you imagine having this name that was so negative and all of a sudden God's going to say, you have mercy. You are my people. What a relief. And then Peter takes these two labels, these two really 
undoings of, of these negative names, Peter then applies them to his churches that he, to whom he's writing and saying, you are my people. You have received mercy. It is that day to which Hosea looked. That day has come. You have received God's mercy. You are now his people. These are incredible labels. These are incredible things to be called. And Peter starts off saying, this is who you are in Christ. Now these verses raise a couple of theological questions for us. One of them is the perennial question of how does the church relate to Israel? And from these passages, it seems rather interesting that Peter feels very free to take these labels that are so core to Israel and Judah's history from the covenant section of Exodus, from Hosea's prophecy, and then freely applies them to the church. And so there are some in the Christian tradition who'd say there's Israel as a separate people of God, and then there's the church. Now, this is not the only critical passage in this discussion. But what it suggests is that there's one people of God made of Jews and Gentiles coming through Israel's Messiah. That the way in is not through an ethnic heritage. The way in is through Jesus the Messiah. That even Gentiles who were once outside the covenant, who were once not God's people, can now be called God's people. And so I would suggest that this passage reminds us there is one people of God, the church, that has claimed Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now getting in, how do we get in to this people of God? In the broader context, and actually the verses before this, Peter makes it very clear that the way in is not through an ethnic heritage. He's actually talking in the prior verses about people stumbling over the stumbling block, and that was the Jews that could not understand that this was the Messiah. And he says they did not obey the message of Jesus. The way in is through the message of Jesus Christ. And so it is a choice to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now the choice is found in God's grace moving in our hearts to move us towards that faith. But still, an act of faith. I liken it to this. There are several different ways to become an American citizen. I imagine most of us became an American citizen by birth. If you're born in the U.S., you are granted American citizenship. If you're born outside the U.S. to American parents, you are also granted American citizenship. But if you were born outside the country and your parents were not Americans, there's another path open to you, and that's naturalization. It requires you to live in the country for a number of years, depending on whether you're married or not. You have to go through some background requirements, but then you actually have to make an oath of allegiance. And I've had the privilege of watching people go through this ceremony. It's a very, very patriotic ceremony. And it's a very interesting pledge that they have to make. Somewhere in the middle of the ceremony, they have to make this oath of allegiance where they say this, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state or sovereignty of whom or of which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. They have to disavow allegiance to anybody else and commit themselves to being an American citizen. So it's not, in, their case, in this case, it's not by birth, 
they had to sign up to be an American citizen. Same for the people of God. It's not an ethnic heritage, it is a choice to enter in through faith, through the message of Jesus Christ, saying that is the message I believe in. He's the Savior that I follow. And so Peter identifies the church with all these magnificent labels, a chosen people, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, God's people who have received mercy. Now what are they supposed to do about it? How should they now act because of who they are? Peter's going to now identify three different ways for them to behave. The first comes in verse 11. He says this, Dear friends, I urge you. Now notice what he calls them. He says, as aliens and strangers. Because they are the people of God who have this heavenly identity, he says, you are now aliens and foreigners. Well, they probably would have grown up in this area. But he marks them out saying, if you have your ultimate allegiance to the king of the universe, then your life here is as an alien, as a foreigner. And as an alien and a foreigner in the world, how are you supposed to behave well? He says, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. This was revolutionary in the first century, and it's just as revolutionary now. To abstain from sinful desires. Our culture has for the most part said, there's no reason to actually abstain from sinful desires. If anything, you should give yourself into them. And so think about our world. It says greed, lust, jealousy, anger, wrath, whatever it is, give into it. In fact, during this past COVID season, Sex trafficking, pornography have increased. They have not tapered off. Our culture suggests it is okay to live into our sinful desires as if they're this good part of us. And part of it is, I think, that we don't believe the last part, which says, which wage war against your soul. Our culture no longer believes that your desires actually wage war against your soul. They think somehow you can live into them fully and you'll be more fulfilled. But the problem with desire, especially simple desires, is that it restricts life to just a few things that we obsess over. Dallas Willard says that desire restricts our vision. Think about the things you obsess over. Maybe a promotion at work or buying a house or paying off that Whatever it is that seems to take over your consciousness, it limits all the other things that you should be enjoying in life. Now, God's not against enjoying life. We are made to desire things, but to desire them in the right way. And the problem with sinful desires is that we reconstrue them to elevate things that should have a certain place, and we make them more important or more all-consuming, and they then run over our lives. So think about what lust does. Lust presents a desire and continues to fester so that it becomes the all-consuming desire or greed. Instead of being able to enjoy family life, greed drives us to do the next thing, the next accomplishment, the next pay raise. It always saps enjoyment when we give in to 
desire. A world would say the way to save yourself is actually to live into it, throw off any kind of religious constrictions. And in fact, what happens? People become more dissatisfied because it cannot bear the weight that you were made to have enjoyment with God. When we put that on earthly things in the wrong way, they will never, ever satisfy. And so it is a war against your soul. And in our culture especially, the images that we see every day want to, remind, want to tempt us into thinking, you can have your cake and eat it too. There is a war. And as Christians who have a heavenly identity but a this-worldly experience in life, we are called to abstain, to shy away from our sinful desires. Let's render them to God to have them back in the way he ordered them to have in the beginning. So he calls them, first of all, to abstain from sinful desires. The second thing he calls them to is to live exemplary lives. Here's verse 12. He says this, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now I'm afraid when some of you hear things like this or hear people, preachers talking about, let's be salt and light, the first thing that goes in your mind is like, oh, let's be nice. Let's make sure we wave hi to the neighbors as they walk by, and if their mail happens to end up in our mailbox, we'll give it back to them. In all honesty, I expect my non-Christian neighbors to do the exact same things for me. He's talking about living such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they're going to someday glorify God. Now, this might not be in this life. That last phrase there says, on the day he visits us, that's looking forward to the eschaton, when God comes back and sets things to right. So your good behavior may not be praised by your neighbors and your coworkers in this life. But when God peels it all back, reveals our heart's intentions, reveals our motives, and then they can see it from the full perspective, will they say, Wow, that person did follow the living God. That person lived out faith, hope, and love in a powerful way. I want to live out that way. I wish I would have lived it out that way when I had the chance. So the question to ask is when people look into our lives, do they see this kind of radical behavior? Not just human niceness, but actual life that has been formed by the Spirit, living out the Christ's presence in our world. Do they see that? That's the kind of good lives Peter calls us to live. What might that look like? Well, I suppose it looks like it always has. Here's an excerpt from a, an ancient letter, and it's a Christian writing to someone who, who's not a Christian, trying to explain what, it, what Christians look like. And it's embellished, perhaps. It gives an ideal picture of the Christian community. But only if it could be us today living out this kind of a life in the 21st century, I think it would still go a long way to being those kinds of people who live out an exemplary life. So here's a section from the Epistle to Diognetus. This is chapter 5. And he writes this, For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech. 
nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the law by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. See the similar themes going on here in our passage. They are citizens of heaven, and yet citizens of their place, and yet they live in a detached way that allows them to love in an extraordinary manner. People being described here live exemplary lives. And I think the call to you and me today is the same kind of thing. Can we live as citizens of heaven, as foreigners here, with this kind of radical living that would motivate us so that one day when God judges the world, the people who accuse us now will rise up and say, you did a good work there, God. Only your strength living through that person allowed them to live that way. Can we point to those places in our life where God's power is motivating and changing us to be his witnesses in this world? So we looked at two of the ways that Peter's identified how we should live out being exemplary individuals in this day and age. The third one, I wish he actually didn't write, especially in this time, but he still wrote it. Let's turn there. Because the third one is this, to submit to human authorities. So he writes this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Let's unpack some of this passage together. The first thing is the command. The command is to submit. This means taking your will and placing it under somebody else's. Doesn't sound very American, but it's taking our desires and our freedom to choose how we're going to behave and say, I am going to make my behavior, my will align 
with what's been asked. It doesn't mean you have to agree, but it does mean you submit. Now notice here it says, for the Lord's sake. It's not just for society's sake, not just for harmony's sake. It's for the Lord's sake that this is an act of serving God. If there's anything that's helped me get through the past couple months, we have to wear masks, we have to do all kinds of interesting things that we've never done before. It has been this, this idea that this isn't just for a governor or a president or a congress. This is ultimately for God himself. It's an act of saying, Lord, I, I submit to you in this form of obeying the people you've put in charge over me. And so it's done for the Lord's sake. And notice what it says, then, to every authority. I wish it said to every rational authority or to every authority to whom you, with whom you agree. No, it says to every authority. There's not an exemption here. It says to every authority instituted among men. And then he lists, whether to the king, this would be the emperor, as the supreme authority, or to governors. So in that day, they had an emperor in Rome, but they also had regional rulers, governors. And it'd be very easy to play one off against the other. In fact, I've heard people doing the same thing in our day. Oh, I like President Trump's policies. I don't like Governor Wolf's, or vice versa. We can kind of differentiate, like, we're, all, we're on board with this ruler, but not the other one. And Peter's making it very clear, there's not really an exemption here. It's from the emperor on down, for us, be the president on down. There's not an exemption as far as who gets out of the submission claim. And so we have here the White House and the governor's mansion. For us, the president, all the way through the governor, and even down to local county commissioners, would still be a part of this chain of command. Now, is, is there an exemption? Is there an exception here? An exception would seem to be that when human authorities go against God's law, then there would be an exemption for the people of God who find God's law to be a higher moral standard than the law of the land. We see that with Peter's own personal life in the book of Acts. He's preaching the gospel. The Jerusalem leaders say, hey, be quiet. And Peter goes away, and guess what? He does the exact same thing. And so we see Peter rebuff the human authorities in that instance. There, so there is an exception. Now I'll be very clear about this. This exception is not just when I feel like it. It is when they have gone against God's laws. When they have directly countermanded what God has required of his people. And so it would seem that the default position is for us as Christians, living as foreigners in this land, to submit to our authorities. That would be the default position. And if we are going to perhaps resist, rebel, whatever, we would have to have very good justification of where they've stepped out of line, where they've gone against God's commands. This also means there's not an exemption when our leaders are not morally upright people, or perhaps not ones we would, we'd prefer. When Peter's writing this, most scholars believe that Nero 
was the emperor of Rome. At this point, the, the famous fire of Rome had not happened, but if you read Suetonius's 12 Caesars, and I would say this, it's kind of like a tabloid version of history, so Suetonius does make things rather salacious, but it's a really interesting take. But what he does talk about Nero, he says there, there's some good things that he does. He's a really good administrator, but he's also very petty. Apparently, he liked to think he was a really good singer and actor, so he would actually insert himself into live plays and musical performances and make the audience stay and applaud. There are stories of people jumping out of the, out of the uh, theaters and like killing themselves because they're like, I can't handle this anymore. So th there was plenty of tabloid-type stuff from Nero that you could have said, this guy is ridiculous. I, I can't respect anything this guy does. And yet... Peter's calling his audience, respect this guy. Submit to him. We can make the same claims about our leaders today. Could we not? And yet Peter reminds his readers, submit. This is the call to the church. Now, it's not just a blanket, hey, just submit. There's a purpose behind it. It's not submission for submission's sake. Watch what he says next here. Why should we live these exemplary lives that go above and beyond, that submit even when it feels difficult, because of this, here's the reason in verse 15, he says this, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Think about that for a second. I hear a lot of people ask pastors or spiritual guides for God's will. Tell me what God's will is. Well, here's a pretty direct clarification of what God's will is. It is this, that you, by doing good, should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. There's enough in that verse to fill a life, to fill more than a life. Think about what that how it would have to be. Think about how you would respond differently on social media or to your coworkers, especially the ones that chafe you a little bit. If your entire life we're bent on silencing the worst and harshest critic of Christianity today. What would be different in your life? What would be different in our corporate life if our goal were to silence the harshest critic out there? So you can imagine, perhaps, someone like Sam Harris, who is a vocal new atheist. I mean, he, he's hard for me to listen to sometimes. But what if he's out there, he's on his talking point that religion just stirs up violence, and what if at the end he had to say a caveat that said, you know what, but the Christians I know, they're the most willing to seek reconciliation. When I've mischaricatured them, they've forgiven me, and you know what, when they've said things offensive, they come and ask for forgiveness. What if he had to put that caveat in there? Or what if a college student who's convinced that religion was just used to justify discrimination, what if they walked into our church and said, you know what? This is the most welcoming place I have ever been. What would that look like? Or what if a police officer who is a disbeliever, kind of sick and tired of seeing crime after crime and dealing with the depravity of humanity, and hearing about our church and our church members, what if... What if he said every time he drove past to his coworker, you know, I've never been one for believing in God, but the people of that church make me wonder if God isn't real. 
What would that look like? What kind of behaviors would we be living out? How would we be talking? How would we be presenting ourselves on Twitter, on Facebook, Snapchat, or whatever social media we, in fact, use? So Peter summarizes here his whole reason for why they're supposed to live exemplary lives. They're supposed to be, basically live out their identity. They were called to be a holy nation, something set apart for God. And he's saying, look, if this is who you are, live it out that the pagans around can look and say, yes, I knew it. There was something different about them. And what if their critiques, their criticisms would ring hollow because the truth is that they would know something different. They would have experienced something different from being with you and with me. Peter calls his audience to live that kind of life. Here's one more thing for us. And that's to freely live as God's servants. So notice what he says here in his last verse. It's a paradox. He says this, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. So he calls them here to live as free men. And I, I wrestled as I read this passage, what does he mean by freedom here? Does he mean political freedom? Does he mean social freedom? How does he using this term freedom? The next couple of verses suggest that it's not political kind of freedom. Because he talks to slaves and says, slaves, serve your masters. The same kind of submission we're supposed to have to the emperor, slaves were supposed to have that to their master. And so his audience is not free in that sense. We often think of freedom in the West as like, I'm free, I'm, I'm in a democratic society. It does not seem to be the freedom he's talking about here. The freedom he's talking about seems to be that of spiritual freedom. Being called out of darkness, being freed from the guilt and shame of sin, being freed from its power in our lives as we work out our salvation in partnership with the Spirit. That's the kind of freedom that he seems to be implying here. Live as free men, no longer worried about guilt, shame the accusation of sin upon us. And he says, instead, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. I'm going to liken this back to the opening illustration of diplomatic immunity. This seems to be similar to Paul's idea of sinning that grace may abound. Hey, you're free, guess what? And some of us might say, well, shoot, if God doesn't hold me accountable and the cross has saved me, great, let's go sin. And Peter says, no, 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 don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Instead, live as servants of God. Free and servants. Doesn't always sound like it goes together. I mean, this is basically being slaves of God. Strikes the modern ears as, as unfree. And yet, Peter says, this is the freest thing you can do. It is a restoring us back to the garden. We were made to be in God's image to be his vice regents down here, to, to, to govern creation. And instead of choosing to serve the king of the universe, we chose to serve king self. And in that process, we became slaves to sin, to sinful desires. So Peter calls them to live out a different kind of life, and that is a life of freedom, no longer bound by sin. 
free to God, but in that moment, to turn ourselves back over and say, God, I am yours. I am not my own. This reminds me of something Martin Luther once said. He has a beautiful little, um, I guess I'm going to call it a tractate, but it's a little essay called On the Freedom of the Christian. And his thesis in this little work is, is this. A Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. It's a great place, right? Subject to nobody. Wow, what a king. And then, in the very next breath, he says, a Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. And so we have this great, profound freedom. And on the other side are called to serve in the most dutiful way. What Peter's outlined here is this, I think, this paradox of, yes, we are free, we're liberated, we're called to be God's holy nation, but in that, we're called now to serve, to act out of love, to care for others. And so our life is to be one of both freedom, but also service. In this day and age, we've, we've got a lot of places to apply some of this. Just the whole, the whole mask thing. I know people, some people are like, hey, I want to talk in person. I want to see your facial expressions. Others are like, hey, we got to take, take as much precaution as we can. So it could simply just being honoring their preferences. It could be saying yes to your spouse's desires for the weekend. And not just saying, yes, I'm going to go along and be miserable the whole time. But like, yes, I really want to be here with you. Serving others takes everything. It takes a lot. And Peter calls us to serve others as Christ would call us to serve. So you might be asking, where does this leave us? Here's where it leaves us, dear fellow exiles in the, in the U.S. You have been called to be God's people, lavished with his mercy. And as God's people, you have been called to live exemplary lives, ones that get in the trenches and fight the long slog against sinful desires, even though those around you have given themselves over to it. They may have waved the white flag of surrender and seemed to think it is somehow better to live life under king desire. And in a world primed for revolt, resistance, and rebellion, you are called to submit to the human authorities as to God, to live such exemplary lives that those who would critique Christians would have their very words ring hollow and empty. Why do all of this? Well, because you are a free servant of the king, fully living into every bit of that paradox, free as a bird and yet fully submissive to the shepherd and guardian of your souls, the king of the universe. That is who we are as God's holy people, his chosen possession, those who have received mercy. Let us pray. Our Father, we do not deserve to be your people. And yet you have chosen us to represent you here, to be your holy nation, to receive your mercy. And Lord, a lot of mercy that is. Give us courage, give us love. Give us creative imagination to live these kinds of lives. 
that would mark us out as your people, fully yours. In Jesus' name, amen.